I'm going to do my best to hold it together today. Once I get rolling, I'll probably be fine. But taking off and landing are going to be a little bit hard. <laughs> so church at Philadelphia. This has nothing to do with the Eagles. I've got some great Philadelphia stories that I could tell you that have nothing to do with uh, this trip. There's a time I was driving to Tennessee, drove through Milwaukee, saw a sign for the Brewers, which reminded me of my friend from Philadelphia, who I go to Brewers games with, which reminded me of Philadelphia, which reminded me of cheesesteak. And so on my way to Tennessee, I turned left to Chicago, went to Philadelphia, never did get the cheesesteak because of a series of unfortunate events. Uh, and made there. There's also the time where on my honeymoon, my wife and I accidentally stayed at a gay hotel in Philadelphia. All sorts of great things have happened in Philadelphia. <laughs> but they're not really relevant, so I'm not going to go into details on those stories. But it's been a fun place over the years. This Philadelphia is far from that one. This Philadelphia is located in modern-day Turkey, as are all of these seven cities. We don't know nearly as much about this city as we know about some of the other cities. There's not as many details in this letter that give us clues as to what the city's like. There's not as many details in history that give us clues to what the city's like. In fact, this will undoubtedly be the text that we rely the least on the historical background to understand the text. Yet, this is perhaps the most encouraging of the seven letters. And so uh, it's fitting that we end on this letter today. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one who will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. Yet you've kept my word, have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet. They will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this letter, along with the church at Smyrna, which we looked at next week in contrast with the church of Laodicea, this letter is almost entirely positive. In fact, it is entirely positive. There's no criticism levied on the church at Philadelphia, merely encouragement. The background of the city, as I said, doesn't give us a lot of help in understanding the letter, which is okay. It's not a terribly difficult letter to understand with perhaps a, a small exception in the middle, which we will get to in a little bit. But we have this church that, that Christ speaks very positively of. How does Christ introduce himself? Throughout all these letters, the introduction of the author has served to enhance our understanding of the letter. This letter is no exception in that count. First of all, Jesus refers to himself as the Holy One. This is very much an Old Testament name for God, referring to his set-apartness, his otherness, 
God is not like us. In our minds, we have many pictures of what God is like. We, we create metaphors to try and understand them. Long beard, gray hair, all that stuff. Uh, we, we have these, these ideas of what God looks like. Those ideas are never accurate, which is why God made 10 really big important rules for Israel. The second one was don't make an image of me. You're going to get it wrong anyway, so don't even bother. The only successful image of God was when Christ became a man. Yes, we could also say when we were created in his image, but we have since corrupted that. When Christ becomes a man, the word dwells among us. That gives God an image. But in his essence, he is the Holy One. He is separate. He is other. We cannot comprehend him to completion. And when he talks to the church at Philadelphia, he wants to remind them of the fact that God is the Holy One. Think of the times in the Old Testament where the holiness of God is most on display. Moses out in the wilderness feeding sheep, exiled from Egypt. Moses was a wealthy man in Egypt. He was in a position of power, but eventually was exiled. And the language the King James uses to refer to what he was doing was he was on the backside of the desert working for his father-in-law. But God appears to him in a burning bush. The bush is not consumed, and the bush cries out to Moses, take off your shoes the ground you're standing on is holy ground. God then reveals himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. People cannot even approach the mountain. God's glory is displayed so clearly that Moses' very face glows. God's holiness manifests itself in the temple tabernacle. He is untouchable. When Isaiah encounters God's holiness in Isaiah chapter 6, he falls on his face and says he is not worthy. Angels cover their eyes because they cannot perceive the glory of God. The book of Revelation will go on to describe the glory of God and his holiness and his majesty in ways that are just beyond our comprehension. And Jesus here uses that language to refer to himself writes to the letter, and in this letter he's going to give the church at uh, Philadelphia confidence that he is in control. He starts his holiness, but he's not only whole, he, holy, he's also the true one. The word true has two different spheres of meaning. They're not ex mutually exclusive. I think both are at play here. The first one is the most obvious one, true versus false. Right? On a test, you have statements, and you can have they are either true or false. There's no in-between. Right? Truth is, it is or it is not. Well, Jesus is. He is true. But there's also another sense of the word true, and it's the idea of faithful. If he says something, it comes to pass. He is the faithful one. He is the true one. And so he introduces himself as such to this church that will face opposition, this church that has much in front of it. The final description is perhaps the most important description for understanding the meaning of this text. He has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Jesus holds the key of David. All right, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus has the key of David? We're going to be referring back to several texts that serve a background in order to get to this text. First of all, in chapter 1, it talks about Jesus having the keys to death and hell. But here it replaces that with, with the keys to a door which he opens and no one shuts, which he shuts and no one opens. 
And that can refer us back to a couple different texts. One that we will be reading in a few minutes together is Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter recognizes the first declaration of Peter, of Jesus' deity. And Jesus says, on this rock will I build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And what you loose will be loosed in heaven, and what you bind in heaven. And he keys of the kingdom to Peter. So Peter, uh, more accurately, that's a, that's a pretty Catholic way to explain that interpretation. He gives the keys to the church. He gives the keys to his bride. And the idea there, and it's tied in with discipline as well, this idea that the church is the avenue on the earth while Jesus is gone of access. The church is the way that God is going to reveal himself to the world. When people are saved, they become a part of the church. This, this body, this bride of Christ, which he dies for. And so here, when it refers to Jesus, it's showing his power over the church. But that's not the only time it refers to Jesus' power over the church and really the ultimate end game of the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. It will get to its appointed end. It's not the only reference. The other reference, which we didn't read, but we read some of the surrounding events this morning, comes from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. So this text is just before the text we read from, from 2 Kings chapter 19. Okay, 2 Kings chapter 19 deals with Hezekiah and Sennacherib. Where we picked up this morning is when Sennacherib is negotiating with Israel and he starts mocking God and then is going to go to war and destroy Israel. But before we got to that point, this previous event happens. Verse number 20 of Isaiah 22. And that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him. And will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. So this is the account of Eliakim. Eliakim functions as a sort of prime minister under the authority of Hezekiah. So the, the section we just read is addressed to Hezekiah. Eliakim is going to be his prime minister, his representative, and he's going to go out and he's going to negotiate with Sennacherib. And when he goes out to negotiate with Sennacherib, the most mighty and powerful person in the world at that time, he's going to hold the keys to David. If Eliakim shuts the gates of Jerusalem, Sennacherib cannot open them. And I would love to just park on this story because it's really a fabulous, interesting story that shows the authority of God. It's just, I think it was inspiring even as we read the chunk that we read this morning, just how, how Sennacherib is so mighty and yet God hears Hezekiah's simple prayer when Hezekiah can do nothing else. I'd encourage you, maybe this afternoon go home and read uh, uh, 2 Kings chapter 19 or Isaiah 22, they kind of tell the same story. It's incredibly encouraging, a little bit funny at times. It's just a, a wonderful story that we would be here all morning if I went into that as much as we go into the text that we're in this morning. But what the usage of this language of the keys is that God is giving authority to protect to Eliakim. 
And here, when this is applied in the book of Revelation to Jesus, when Jesus applies it to himself, what he is saying is nothing will defeat you, church at Philadelphia. I have the keys to the gate. I have the key of David. I will protect my church. There is nothing that can defeat me. Referencing back to his own words, the gates of hell will not prevail against you because I shut the gates and I open the gates. And when I shut the gates, no one opens the gate. And when I open the gate, no one shuts the gate. Jesus is declaring to this church in his title, in his address to them, I'm in charge. I've got authority. No army is more powerful than me. In the story of Sennacherib, all human attempts fail. They try an alliance with the Egyptians, it fails. They try diplomacy, it fails. They try bribing Sennacherib, it fails. You know what works? God killing 185,000 people in their sleep. That's how God defeats Eliakim has the keys, but is Eliakim really the authority? No. God is. And here, in Revelation, is Jesus. Jesus holds the keys. There is nothing to be afraid of. This brings us to the content of the letter. What does he say to the church? We start with the introductory formula that pretty much every letter has had. I know your works. I'm watching you. I know what you're doing. Usually followed by they're not good or they are good. A, a description of their works. But here in the church of Philadelphia, Jesus does not follow this with a description of what the church at Philadelphia is doing. Said, what does he describe? I know your works. Behold, I have set for you an open door, which no one is able to shut. When Jesus talks to the church at Philadelphia, he says, I know what you're doing. Doesn't really matter. I opened a door. No one shuts the door. Jesus opens. No one opens the door that Jesus shuts. The gates of hell will not prevail over his church. He's given them an open door. What, what's the open door refer to? Uh, the kind of easy reading is, well, here's a path forward. Here's an open door. I've opened up a door. Take advantage of it. Some would apply that to like an evangelistic opportunity that the church at Philadelphia had. I think giving way too little credit to what Jesus is saying here. That's, that's, that's weakening it so much. Maybe that, that is some, some truth there. But this is talking about eternity. Right? This is talking about a kingdom. This is talking about something that lasts. It's not just church at Philadelphia. You've got a few, few years here where you're just going to have this great opportunity for fruitful ministry. No, this is more than that. Jesus having the key to David is something eternal there. When he says to them, I've opened a door and no one's going to shut it, he's saying the end is already guaranteed. Where this is going. For those of you who are NBA fans, it's like the Warriors playing the Cavaliers in the final. You know it's going to happen. Everything is just drama to get there, and then you can be depressed that it happened again. <laughs> you already know what's going to happen. There's this certainty in Jesus' promises. I've already made it to the end. I've already finished the race, Jesus can say to us. When we look forward to our resurrection, we're not looking internally, we're looking externally. Jesus already showed what's coming. Jesus already conquered death. Jesus already conquered sin. Jesus already is in heaven and has ascended. 
Jesus has already done all of these things. Nothing is in question. There is no doubt. There is no reason to be afraid. The end has already been determined. The end has already been secured. The price has already been paid. And Christ is the one holding the keys. What about the church then? How does he describe them? Not by their great works. Not, not by their power. Not by their riches. Not by their giftedness. How does he describe the church? I know that you have a little power. I know you're just little guys. This is probably the smallest of the seven churches. Nothing notable about the city. I know you're just the little guys. But I've opened a door. I'm not the little guy. I have set something. It does not matter how small you are. It does not matter how weak you are. I have set something before you, and it will be accomplished. All you have to do is keep my word and not deny my name. Through the power of Christ, there is no obstacle which is powerful enough to destroy the church of Christ. There is nothing that destroys Christ's church. He is more powerful than anything. He died. He purchased the church. He loves the church. He sacrificed for the church. He secures the church. He indwells the church. Jesus loves this church. And there is nothing, nothing that is powerful enough to defeat it. There is no, no enemy from without, no enemy from within that is powerful enough to counteract Christ's purposes for his body on the earth. And we can take it to the bank. The end is already determined. The door has already been opened. No one can shut it. The door can be shut and no one will open it. Jesus holds the keys and he does not expect us to be powerful. He does not expect us to open the door. He does not expect us to shut the door. He does not expect us to line up the door and stop the enemies from attacking. Brings to my mind uh, the Lord of the Rings movies, where two times they get in these sieges and they're all they're they're pushing against the door. They're stacking things against the door to stop the orcs from breaking through. All right, we don't have to do that. We don't have to create some bulwark. Some we don't have to be uh, defending ourselves. All we have to do is be faithful. All we have to do is trust. All we have to do is be obedient. And Christ is the one who buttresses the gate. Christ is the one who holds the line. Christ is the one who plants his feet firmly in the ground and will not fall as he protects us. Christ will guard this church just like he promised to guard the church at Philadelphia. And what will happen? Two results come if this small, powerless church keeps holding on to Jesus. First of all, they will be vindicated. Verse number nine. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. What's going to happen to these enemies of the church, the synagogue of Satan, those who say they are Jews but are not? We talked about that last week. Likely uh, Hebrews who claim to be following the Jews. 
Jewish religion, but have rejected the Messiah that the Jewish religion is built around, that group that persecuted Paul all throughout Asia, that group that stirred up the Roman government against the Christians, that group. What's going to happen to them if the church, this little powerless church is faithful? What happens to them? They get on their knees and they recognize, wow, Jesus sure loved you guys. Vindication is coming. Jesus tells the church at Philadelphia, you're going to face opposition, but you're going to face opposition for a time. There will come a point in time when every knee shall There will come a point in time when God makes absolutely clear his love for his own. The church must simply maintain their faithfulness to Christ, knowing that the end is secure, that they must simply hold fast to Jesus, no enemy, no uh, ally, nothing is needed besides Jesus. He is their absolute hope. The first expectation is that they will be vindicated. The second expectation is that they will be delivered. Those of you who have talked to me much about this topic know my least favorite branch of systematic theology is eschatology, end times, all that stuff. Maybe angelology too. Uh, those are the ones, those are, of course, the two parts of systematic theology that get the most questions about, right? When we, when we were having, we would have question time where they could ask whatever questions. I said, only rule is you can't ask questions about the end times or angels. It's got to be something besides those two. Uh, and I, I have successfully, for the most part, avoided much talk about it. But here we are on the key text for the pre-tribulational rapture on my last Sunday. And I'm not going to duck because <laughs> I don't duck. So let's, let's spend a couple minutes on this. It's there. I think we need to address it in order to understand the text properly. This really is the key text for a pre-tribulational rapture. Uh, the text in Thessalonians can be very easily understood without a pre-tribulational rapture, about the trumpet of the Lord and him coming in the skies. That, that's pretty easy to understand without pre-trib rapture. This text, though, is the key idea. I guess I should define some terms here. Um, so when I'm talking about pre-tribulation rapture, I'm talking about the end times. The schedule of someone who believes in a pre-tribulational rapture means that Jesus is going to come back. He's going to rapture his church. Then there will be seven years of tribulation predicted in Daniel chapter 9, uh, predicted in uh, the Olivet Discourse, predicted also for most of the rest of the book of Revelation. Right? In this time of great tribulation, it's going to be a time of testing for the Jews, which will call them to Christ. And on the world which rejects Christ. Ultimately, that culminates in Christ's glorious reappearing, the Battle of Armageddon, all the stuff in the Left Behind books, all, all, all that stuff, okay? That's going to happen. That, that's the pre-tribulation rapture, that the rapture takes the church out first, then the tribulation happens, and then Jesus returns again in his glorious second coming. There are a wide range of options of the pre-tribulational rapture. So say tribulation is already completed. Some would say that we are in the tribulation right now. Some would say that the tribulation is still in the future, but the church will endure through the tribulation. There's a wide range of options. All of them are within the realms of orthodoxy. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming soon. We can all agree with that on just about every other Christian. Okay? This is one of the places that the most significant doctrine in the world, but it is one of the places that people disagree, and this is the key text so let's cover it. Three questions, 
to help us understand this text. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Question number one, is this specific just to the church at Philadelphia, or is this something that's universal in scope? Right? This is the letter to the church at Philadelphia. We have not felt the need to make a universal application to the promises God made in other, uh, other letters. We, we focus more on the specific of the letter rather than talking about the, the end times implications. However, notice something in this letter that, that leads us towards the, this global aspect. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. So it's not those who are of the synagogue of Satan in Philadelphia. It's not the Roman government. It's not those who are specifically opposing just this church at Philadelphia. It's the whole world. How else are they described? To try those who dwell on the earth. Okay, so again, there is a global aspect to this. That's why I'd conclude this is talking about the tribulation. This is talking about the capital T tribulation, not the small t tribulations that we all go through. So, the tribulation, I believe, is being talked about here, this global trial. Well, what is the hour of trial? Let's get a little more specific here. Number one, it's a specific period of time. It is an hour of trial. It is not a trial. It is an hour of trial. The emphasis is on the timing of it. It is a period of time. It is an hour of trial. Now, no one interprets that as meaning 60 minutes of trial, but a time period, which is perfectly within the of how you would translate the word aura uh, from Greek. It's this time period, this season of trouble. It has worldwide impact. Notice who is being tested in this time. Is the church being tested in this time? No. There are times when the church is tested. First Peter, loaded with testing of the church. The other letters to the churches in Revelation, loaded with testing of the church. Hebrews, loaded with testing of the church. This is not talking about the church being tested. Who's being tested in this verse? An hour of trial coming on the whole world. The whole world is facing the trial, not the church. To try those who dwell on the earth. The whole earth, those who dwell on the earth, those are the ones who are being tried. So this is not talking about a time that churches to be persecuted, God's going to be faithful to keep them in that persecution, to protect them in that persecution. Talking about something different. The church is not facing the trial. The world around the church is facing the trial. Question number three, what does keep you from mean? Right? And this is another point that, that's very significant to understanding this text. Keep you from could mean two different things. Both are grammatically legitimate understandings of this text. One option is keep you from the hour of trial within the hour of trial. You are experiencing trials. You are going to be in the hour of trial, and I'm going to protect you in the hour of trial. Another text that may translate the same phrase the same way would be John 7, 15, which says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Okay, so the idea that they're still in the world, but they are being kept. So the church faces trials, but we have confidence that Christ is protecting us from them, even as we are experiencing them. The other option 
equally grammatically legitimate is he is keeping you from the hour of trial by removing you from the hour of trial. This is translated this way in John 12, 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. But this, for this purpose I have come to this hour. So Jesus prays, God, take me from this hour. I don't want to experience this. He's not talking about keep me through my crucifixion. He's actually asking God, please take this from me. Other places he says, take this cup away from me. He's not talking about merely how he exists in suffering. He's asking for the removal of the suffering. So he's asking to be kept from it, taken out of it. Both of those are legitimate interpretations. One of those leads to a pre-tribulation rapture and one leads to a post-tribulation rapture. If he is, if the promise is that the church will be from tribulation, pre-tribulational rapture. Jesus comes, takes his church to deliver them from the time of great tribulation. If it's protect them from within the trial, then it is a post-tribulation rapture that there is one return of Christ at the end where he takes everyone to, to judgment. Right? So those are the, the two ways to understand that. Now, this isn't a hill to die on. It really is not a hill to die on. Please don't die on this hill. All right, this is, this is we, we look forward to the glorious hope. I've heard people say this is really important because we need to know what the blessed hope is. Well, the blessed hope is that Jesus opens doors that no one shuts and shuts doors that no one opens, that ultimately one day all things will be right. So I don't think if we're a little unsure on the interpretation of this literally one verse that this whole doctrine hinges on, that we should be dividing the church of Christ over this issue. However, I tend to, my understanding, I was on the fence about this one a little bit for a long time, I, I tend to read it as a pre-tribulational rapture. And I do that not just because of this text in specific, because I think this text can make the case either way, because I look at the other times when Christ has uh, even delivered his judgment on people on the earth and he had a remnant of his own. Times like Noah's flood. What does God do in Noah's flood? He takes them from the flood. Okay? He, he puts them in an ark and he delivers them from. He didn't give them like gills or something so they could swim in the flood. He takes them out of the flood. He protects them. Uh, Israel, while in captivity in Egypt, the plagues are coming on the, on the Egyptians. Who's God judging? Is he judging the Israelites? No, he's judging the Egyptians. So in that time, what does he do? He separates from the rest of Egypt. And the region where Israel dwells is not affected by the plagues that the rest of Egypt is affected by. I think we have a, a track record of Christ, of God protecting his people, not always protecting them from suffering, not always protecting them from trials, but in those times where he is uniquely trying those who are his enemies, God protects his own. And given that overarching narrative of Scripture, I think it is very reasonable to also conclude that that would be the case at the end. That when there is a time of tribulation, we will be kept from it. We will be protected from it. We will be delivered from it. Again, not a hill to die on. Yet I think that that is what this text is teaching us. We don't need more than one text to believe a Bible doctrine. Okay? But I do think it's wise for us to 
hold tightly relative to how many texts we have. Right? Justification by grace and love through faith alone, you're not stuck going to one text for that. You can just basically open your Bible and find it on the page you're on. That's one. That is a hill to die on. The doctrine of the Trinity. All, all throughout the Bible, we have Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit referred to as God. That's a hill to die on. This one is not. Yet, it is a comfort that Christ will protect his church, even if you don't take the pre-tribulation interpretation. This can be a comfort that Christ will protect his church during the time of wrath, whether it's by delivering them from it or delivering them through it. Christ protects his church. When is this going to happen? Verse number 11, I am coming soon. This is going to happen soon. Keep in mind this was written around 1900 years ago. So soon could be as much as 1900 years or more. We know that already. Could still be another 1900 years. We have no grounds to predict that it's anything but that. And every time someone goes around predicting that it is something besides just a general soon, it usually ends up with a cult and some embarrassment and some news stories. All right? That's just what happens. Go down through the list. Howard Camping or Harold Camping, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Adventists. There is a long list of people who have tried to predict when it's coming. Christ predicts when it's coming. It's coming soon. And if he wanted us to know more than that, he would have told us more than that. But he has told us soon. So what that means is that we are ready, but we're not living as if it's going to happen today in the sense that we just have no plans for tomorrow. Or that we're going to be distraught if it does not happen today. If Christ does not come before we die, we should not be shocked that that happened. Because that has happened millions of Christians throughout history. There's going to be a few in the grand scheme of things relative to the body of the church. The number who will be raptured is very, very small. And so we shouldn't be surprised that we're not in that elite group. Yet we should be eagerly anticipating, longing for Christ's return, living as if he would return, living with that kind of kingdom ethic, the, the, the life that he would have us to live in preparation, evangelizing with enthusiasm, with urgency. Because Christ is coming. So how is the church supposed to respond to the certainty of vindication and protection? The church is supposed to respond, verse 11, hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize upon your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. That idea of a pillar, unmovable, a fixture in God's temple. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If there is one message worthy of bringing home one last time to this church, it's hold on to Jesus. How many times has that echoed from this pulpit over the years? Whether it's in the book of Hebrews where it seemed like that was the main thrust of every single sermon, remember? Hold on to Jesus, hold on to Jesus. Nothing's better than Jesus. Jesus is better than everything. Ecclesiastes, same thing. This is temporary. Fear God more. Hold on to Jesus instead of fearing the world around us. The letters to the churches. 
The Gospel of Mark, Jesus is worth following. 1 Corinthians, Jesus is better than any earthly wisdom. I don't know that there's a sermon series that we've gone through that the main thrust is not Jesus better. Hold on to Jesus. And so it is fitting that we close with this letter where this powerless little church, Jesus says, hold fast to what you have. I open doors and no one shuts them. I shut doors and no one opens them. Hold fast to what you have. There is nothing to fear. Trials will come to the church of Christ. Hold on to Jesus. He opens doors and he shuts them. Trials will come to the world around the church. Hold on to Jesus. He opens doors and no one will shut them. In all of our suffering, Jesus is better. Jesus is better because he's everlasting, because he's perfectly good, because he's completely sovereign. He is in control. To understand this, all we have to do as a church is look in the mirror. 